Hi, I'm Simone Halpin, the Executive Director of Naomi's House. And since last December, when we partnered with Serve the World and Chapel Street, we have been hard at work building The Gathering Place, the only day program for victims of sexual exploitation in the area. It was in January of 2020 that we felt the Lord was calling us to consider The Gathering Place. We knew that nothing like this existed in our county. So we took the step of faith, we started praying, started asking God, what would this look like? What do women need? What are the resources that we have that we can put together in order to provide a day program that gives more women the opportunity to find hope and healing? This is a place where we can serve up to 40 women a year four times the number of women we've been able to serve in residential. And we are thrilled to see women begin to take advantage of this beautiful space and the services that we can provide educationally, vocationally, therapeutically, so that they can begin again. Hi, I'm Amanda Bagnall. I'm the clinical director of day program services here with Naomi's House. When we had the opportunity to expand services at the gathering place to reach more women, <laughs> I got really excited about what that could look like for our community and for the women that we serve. We have a young woman who's traveling all the way from Chicago on public transportation to receive services here at The Gathering Place. Because we are one of the only day program services that provides this type of care to women who've been exploited, she finds it worth her time to come out here three days a week, travel two hours just to meet with our case managers, do the day program, and receive therapeutic services. God knew and he saw what our needs were and he called up the church to meet those needs. And not only did you raise $200,000 to equip us to close on this space, but you went above and beyond. And through that partnership, we were able to cover all the expenses of the renovation. So we're sitting here today in the most beautiful space, welcoming space, and we're starting to fill it already with women who need to hear that there is hope for their future, that there is healing for their trauma, and that together with this community, with the church, with our volunteers, with our staff, we will walk alongside of them and hope for them that their lives can look different and that they can heal from their commercial sexual exploitation. Well, as you will remember, uh, Naomi's House was our Serve the World partner last Advent season. Uh, it's one of our traditions here at Chapel Street that we, through our Serve the World ministry, uh, pick a local or global partner um, to highlight during the Christmas season. And um, Chapel Street, you all responded um, so, so generously. We had a goal, an audacious goal of $200,000 last Advent that we wanted to be able to help create this uh, facility um, for Naomi's house. And um, Chapel Street gave uh, $300,000. And so not only were we able to do more with Naomi's house, but with Serve the World in general. And so we're um, so grateful. Uh, we think about this time of year uh, with Thanksgiving and we, we take intentional time to to reflect on what we are thankful for. And without a doubt, uh, as a staff, Serve the World, Chapel Street as a whole, we are so, so thankful for you, for all the ways that you partner with us and continue to do this work. And we're excited. Next week, we get to introduce to you all uh, this year's uh, Advent ministry partner, our Serve the World partner. Uh, and you'll hear more about that uh, next, next Sunday. So we're excited to share that with you next weekend. I want you to, uh, and maybe you play this game, maybe you 
you don't. But do you ever like have those moments when you daydream about a situation or a scenario where for whatever reason you can ask for anything and you'd be guaranteed to receive it? Like do you ever get mentally down that road? And none of this like wishing for more wishes stuff, right? Like just if, if you were, if somebody came up to you with unlimited resource, whatever, and said, whatever you ask for, you'll get. And, and most of us, and when our daydreaming kind of goes down that track, if you think about where your mind goes and what you think about, you often are kind of revealing to you the things that you value, what you desire most. And so in our honest moments, oftentimes those daydreams turns to things like fame or to money or to health, to success, to power, to love, all of these desires of our heart. And we imagine what if, what if, what if somebody could guarantee me I'd receive this one thing? What is it that I would ask for? Right? In, our, in our most like altruistic moments, we say things like world peace and like in poverty and whatever, right? But, but when, our, when we're daydreaming about it, when we're thinking, it's usually in one of those categories. And I raise this because today in Mark's gospel, we're, we're going to um, pause on Mark's gospel after today. We're going to go into a, a season of Advent and focusing on the preparation and the anticipation of the arrival of Jesus and what that means, why we celebrate that as a church. In January, uh, we have a series in the Psalms we're going to do for a couple of weeks, and then February, we're going to come back to, to Mark's gospel. So don't, don't put these away. You're going to need them, and that'll lead us right up through Easter um, together. So this is our last Sunday for a little bit in, in the gospel of Mark. And and we're going to look at two disciples that come to Jesus, and they essentially come, and their request of him is they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's a bold request, right? And we're going to look at how Jesus addresses that request, and how in the midst of, of speaking into that request in their lives, he is unfolding for them a grander vision of his kingdom, and specifically how his kingdom works, and how it doesn't work. How his kingdom doesn't operate like the kingdom of this world. In fact, he's training his disciples to think and ultimately then to live in the opposite direction of that kingdom, of this kingdom. Which, when we're honest with ourselves, I think, continues to be a challenge for us as, as we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to live as a an apprentice of Jesus, how do we do this in the 21st century in the world that you and I exist in every day of our lives? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a part of his kingdom? How do we do this well? We continue to wrestle with some of these same questions. And as we've talked about, Mark's gospel now is really beginning to focus on the purpose of Jesus, on, on his mission, and the disciples are there they're getting bits and pieces of it. Like they're growing in this understanding of what Jesus ultimately came to do. And yet their understanding also remains incomplete at, at, at their best. And, and when they're not at their best, it's, it's misguided. And I think we'll see that here. And so Jesus, in this effort to ready his disciples, 
he has been talking more about what lies in front of them. He's been talking more about his going to Jerusalem and, and how he's going to lay down his life. And he's talking about it in more specific and overt and clear terms. And so this is actually a little bit of the context. This is not the passage we're going to focus on today, but it, it precedes it. So I just want us to, to look at this and kind of um, what, what comes before this conversation. So this is Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So just, again, contextually, as we work our way through the whole gospel of Mark, we're now probably within the last month or so of Jesus' life. So half of the gospel has been the first year and a half of his public ministry or so. We're now sort of in, in the last half of the gospel of Mark is focused on this last month of his life. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I don't, I don't know why, but oftentimes when I think about the perspective of the disciples, I feel like their understanding of what Jesus was ultimately going to do was a bit mysterious and ambiguous. That reads pretty direct, right? Like it, it reads like Jesus seems like he is... And so you, you kind of wonder in this situation, like, what is going on in their heads? Like, is it just this sense of, like, Jesus is often teaching us in parables, and he, he says things that we don't understand, and, and we don't know what to do with this, so we just kind of let him do his thing and, and move on? We're, we're not really told. But what is clear in this account and in others is that they have this growing understanding about his, on, his arriving kingdom, his, the, the, the fact that he is going to be recognized and understood as the king of kings. And so the disciples in the midst of this, they're starting to try to think about, to understand where they fit in and all that. What, what role are we going to have when, when this kingdom of God is realized? They're, they're arguing amongst themselves, how is Jesus going to fill out his cabinet? Who gets to be secretary of state and secretary of defense? And who's going to play all these important roles? They continue to be either confused or ignore what Jesus is revealing about how he's going to accomplish this victory. But they understand that something's coming. And by the way, I think this stands out to us and is a reminder that they, like you and I, that we have this tremendous capacity to hear what we want to hear from Jesus and sometimes ignore things that he makes very plain to us. So why don't we pray and we'll, we'll look at the passage for today. Father, you are and continue to expand our understanding of your kingdom, how it works and 
what it's supposed to look like, and, t- and today, what it means to be great in your kingdom. So Jesus, would your Holy Spirit just speak? Would we have ears to hear and hearts to receive from your word today? And may we better reflect men and women and, and students living in your kingdom, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 10, picking it up in verse 35 now. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those who have... It is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So it strikes me as we, as we read this, that just immediately after hearing Jesus describe going to Jerusalem, what's going to happen, that he's going to be spit on and mocked and killed, that the response to that is, is to kind of like knock on his door and be like, hey, Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, can I sit on your right hand? Can I sit on your left? Like it, it, like it seems like they're missing so much of what Jesus is leading them into. And Jesus' response to all of this is really a depiction, it's a description of the nature of how his kingdom functions or what it looks like, what life in his kingdom means. And so there's a couple things I want to highlight to here. Beginning with life in his kingdom means submission over status. Life in his kingdom means submission over status. Finding, uh, getting people seated in big events and things of that nature can be a stressful situation, right? Like if you've ever uh, had to fill out one of those seating charts for a wedding and you're kind of like, where are you going to, can you get people grouped together with the right groups and people have this thing about like how close they're sitting to the bridal table sort of like is this indicator of like how close you are or something to the family and so it's like if you're real close you're like I'm pretty important here and if you're way back by the exit like you barely got an invitation to this thing right like or even just going to the movies for that matter like if you do you know anybody that's like way too intense about like I like a good seat at the movies I don't like to be there three and a half hours early for like sing two or whatever, you know, like you like people sometimes overdo the, like, I got to get the right seat. 
Coming to church is no different. There is a clear hierarchy about getting your spot at church. And the worst possible seat in this entire room is right there next to me. Like you, I have been here on Sundays, every seat filled, no place, standing room only. The ushers go up to somebody and say, hey, there's a, there's a few seats right up front down by Sterling. And they're like, we'll stand. Thank you. Like this, it's offensive, right? In the ancient world, to lesser degree in, in our world, seating reflected status. It, it's James and John, they're, they're rightly convinced that Jesus is the king of kings. His power, his authority has been displayed time and time again. When he's healed the sick and when he's stilled the storm and when he's fed the hungry, when he has spoken life, restored life back into the dead. They see it, they get it. And so they're looking at what's what's coming and they want to make sure that they have a place of prominent of prominence as Jesus takes his throne. And there's two things here that I just find humorous. First is is like I said earlier their their approach to Jesus. Teacher, uh, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. This is the exact same ploy like my daughters made when they wanted a puppy. Like Dad, we want you to say yes to this before we ask you for what we're going to ask you for. Again, I don't know if this was more common, like in, in the ancient Near East, I couldn't find any evidence of that, but it just struck me as, as funny and as bold. Secondly, what's interesting to me is that Matthew's gospel, we don't see this in Mark's gospel, but in Matthew's gospel, James and John have their mom with them. Like, in fact, she's the one who comes to Jesus and kind of speaks to Jesus on behalf of her sons. It's, it's like the, a first century over-involved mom. And again, it, it, I find it funny, but I think beyond that, I just find it very human. We, this is how we approach things. This is how we understand things. The vision of the path to glory that they have is, is for them to be proximate to the power and the authority of Jesus. So essentially they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, grant us the privilege of status in your kingdom. We want to be in positions of power when your kingdom is fully enacted. And so Jesus, now he begins to deconstruct and then to reframe their understanding, not only of really status, but really his path to glory. Because the path to glory that Jesus is on this is a path, as he's already told his followers, that's going to be marked by sacrifice and by suffering and by humility and ultimately by his death. So graciously, which I think, again, that just reflects who Jesus is, graciously, patiently, he responds to James and John. In verse 38, he says, you don't know what you are asking. Again, I think there's something there for us oftentimes in our own approaches to Jesus, but that's for another day. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The metaphor of, of the cup, in the Old Testament, the metaphor of the cup is frequently used for two things. 
Um, sometimes it's used as a description of the blessing of God. So the idea in the Psalms of the blessing of God being poured out you, the cup of God is a reference to blessing. Far more frequently in the Old Testament, the cup of God is a metaphor of his wrath. It's a metaphor of, of justice being enacted on the unjust, of, of his um, willingness to take on the wrath of God. And so when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just prior to the cross, if you remember what he prayed, he said, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. I, I, he, I, he's about to bear the weight of sin and shame and guilt for all of us, for all humanity, through all time. In that moment, he's about to take that on. He says, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Right? Victory, his glory, it's not going to come through an elevated status, but rather through his submission to the will of the Father. He's saying this is the cup that he will drink. And he says, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? It's not referring to Jesus's baptism by uh, John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Remember that Greek word literally means immersed. So in other words, can you, can you submerge yourself? Can you bear the weight of God's righteous fury against sin? Do you want to be immersed in a holy God's just judgment? Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you don't know what you're asking of me. The path to glory that, that they want to be a part of, it's, it's the path to the cross. It's a path marked by false accusation and brutal abuse and heaped on humiliation and ultimately his sacrifice. They, they come to Jesus seeking status, but Jesus reframes them back to a path that's going to be marked by submission, his willing submission, and, and he's showing something for us. What it means to follow Jesus, to live in his kingdom, it's, it's a path of submission. Additionally, Jesus demonstrates that, that life in his kingdom means sacrifice over security. Life in the, in the kingdom of God means sacrifice over security. Jesus continues to reframe their understanding of how his kingdom works. And he says something that I think it would be difficult to hear, especially now. He says, and they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Secondly, he's saying those, those positions have been determined by the Father. Those aren't mine to grant. Again, he submits to the will of the Father, despite being fully God. He, he willingly chooses that. And then he says, and I think this is what we have to wrestle with, you will drink this cup. And you will be baptized with this baptism. Have you ever had those moments when you're super excited about something and you come and, and you tell somebody about it and then they tell you kind of like how awful it is? Like we were, we were talking about this the other day because Pastor Joe and his wife Judy, uh, they had their baby Luca and, 
and he's getting stronger. He's still in the NICU, but he's growing every day. He's now uh, five pounds, six ounces, a healthy little boy, and they're looking forward to being able to take him home for Christmas. But Joe was laughing because oftentimes he would come in and sit in the office and we'd have staff meetings and all these sorts of things. And he's talking about how excited he is. And then we would start to go into like war stories, right? And we start talking about sleepless nights and dirty diapers and all of these things. And Joe's like, you guys make this sound awesome. Like, you know, like, and, and we do that sometimes. Do the disciples are, they're approaching Jesus. They've got this idea in their head about his kingdom, about what he looks like. And Jesus is saying, it's not, it's not what you're thinking. That's not how it works. And to, to re reflect that, to reveal that, when James and John hear this from Jesus, right, what do they say? Yeah, yeah, we're able. We can do that. Which reveals that they continue to either have a misguided understanding of the path that Jesus is on, which I think is true, or they have drastically overestimated their own strength and commitment to Jesus, which we will discover is true. Jesus goes on to say something really difficult. He looks at them and says, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So given everything that, that we just talked about regarding the nature of this cup and this baptism, what does Jesus mean when, when he says to James and John, this will in fact be your experience? What is, what is Jesus referring to here? And while Jesus has made it clear to them that they cannot bear the weight that Jesus is going to take on when he goes to the cross, he is also now making it clear to them as followers of Jesus that they are called to identify themselves with his cup and with his baptism. They're called to identify themselves with, with his cup and with his baptism. This is both an indication of the suffering that, that James and John and the rest of the disciples, that they're going to experience as they become the leaders of the early church, as they are left with the responsibility of being the, the voices who proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. If, Many of them, most of them, I think all of them, with the exception of John himself, die as a result of their, their commitment to Jesus. John is sent into exile where he suffers. But beyond that, he's communicating to us, he's revealing to us the call of everyone who identifies themselves with, with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to dilute this. Paul in Romans chapter eight, verse 16 and 17 says this. He says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul's saying this is the normal, expected um, result of what it means to follow Jesus, is that you, you share in his sufferings. And this is important for us to understand again as the church, 
right now. And that is primarily is that his kingdom has always grown through sacrifice. His, his kingdom has never, it was not designed, it was not intended to grow through power grabs and status symbols or conquering other kingdoms. His kingdom advances when we lay ourselves down and when we do it for the benefit of others. His kingdom advances when, when we don't claim our own rights, but rather instead we take up our cross and follow him. Jesus says to James and John in that moment, this is going to be your experience. Jesus' life is not merely a metaphor. It's not an illustration of a giving life. It's not some vague notion of a kind of sacrificial life. His life is the life that his followers are called to. He says, you will drink of this cup. You're going to drink of this cup if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Then finally, life in his kingdom means uh, service over self. And this is, is, he just gives us this incredible picture, this beautiful illustration, the radical and distinctive nature of the kingdom of God. Back in verse 41, he says, And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I think this is, this is one of those moments, and, and again, you can, you can probably recall a similar time where you have understood something, you've pictured something, you've maybe read about something, but, but then you see it with clarity. If you've ever read a book that you loved, and then it's been made into a movie, like I had all kinds of friends back when the Lord of the Ring movies were going, they were like J.A.R. Tolkien nerds. And they had read those books and poured over them and loved them and they imagined in their head what all these scenes looked like. And so when the movies came out, they would have these ongoing conversations about what Peter Jackson got right and what he got wrong and what these characters should have looked like and, and all these sorts of things. And it's just nerds just loving it, you know? <laughs> just, just trying to imagine in their head. What does greatness look like? What does it look like to us? Notice that the disciples, by the way, they're not super happy with James and John in this moment. Maybe they're just upset that, that James and John had the boldness to get there first. It's like calling shotgun in the kingdom or something. But Jesus responds by redefining greatness in his kingdom. And there's two things I want us to capture here. Notice that he says it is supposed to be different. It's supposed to be different. We know how power and greatness works in the world. Those who have it lord it over those who don't. It's how the world works. But Jesus gives us a clear directive as the church 
but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. The church is supposed to be a place. The kingdom of God is a place that is noticeably different. And let's be honest with each other here. We have not always got this right. In times, I would argue that that we've been very comfortably operating in exactly the same fashion that the world does. And when we do so, it needs to be recognized, confessed, and repented of it. Because when we've lost our distinctiveness, we've lost our witness. We can look at all kinds of situations in society, in the church. We've heard the horror stories. We understand the damage that that has done to our witness. But it's easy sometimes for me to look at those situations out there and think, oh, how horrible that is. But as I was working on this, it's like, I, I got to turn this inward. I got I to gotta look at my own heart and the way I operate and the way I treat people and the way that I reflect this kingdom that Jesus describes. And when I see it in me, when I see that I'm operating, that I'm functioning according to the way of this world, it, need, it, needs, to be, it needs to be recognized, it needs to be confessed, and it needs to be repented of. It's not supposed to be this way here. We're supposed to do things differently. And then Jesus goes on and he, he redefines greatness. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This, this is Jesus' definition of greatness in his kingdom. It's the upside down, we talk about this all the time, it's the upside, upside down nature of his kingdom. And to be great in his kingdom is to place others ahead of yourself. To be first, he says, is to be a slave of all. This is Jesus' kingdom ethic. When, when James and, and John approach Jesus with their request, they come with a very different idea about power and authority and influence and greatness. And this is the irony in this, is that Jesus' moment of greatest glory, when that is most evident, would not be won through military victory or some sort of political savvy, but it comes, as, as Paul writes in Philippians, when he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is how Jesus modeled greatness. Mark goes on to say that the Son of Man didn't come to, to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay our ransom. He came to pay a debt that you and I owed 
as a result of sin and that we were incapable of, of covering, he came to, pray, to pay the freedom price and he purchased it by his blood. And because of that, we are set free. And what we are set free to is to give and to serve and to sacrifice on behalf of others. This is how Jesus defines greatness. It's the unique and distinctive nature of his kingdom, and it's what we're called to as his church. And we pray, Jesus, may this be true here. Let's pray together. Father, we do just... Um, Lord, come with a sense of, of humility, recognizing that, um, that what you have done on our behalf is undeserved and unwarranted, and yet you just did it because you loved us. You made yourself nothing. But it was in that that your name is exalted in the heavens and on earth and, and under the earth. And so, Jesus, you have set before us a vision of greatness a vision of your kingdom wherein we lay ourselves down for the benefit of others, wherein we willingly let, lay down our rights and we willingly take up our cross to follow you. So Jesus, reshape and reform our vision of what it means to be great. Jesus, when we fall back into the pattern of operating according to the way this world operates, Jesus, would you open our eyes to it? Would you reveal it to us so that we can confess it and repent of it so we don't want to lose our witness? Make us a distinctive place. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.